everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a great whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. I baked some bread the other day, came out pretty good, and I gotta say, I would highly recommend bread baking as an activity. It's nice because it's a few minutes of work spread out over several hours, so most of the time you're just kind of fucking off, but you still get to feel like you're being productive, and also, at the end, there's food. So, all things considered, not bad. The process I use goes pretty much like this. You got out all the ingredients, that takes about a minute. Then you start soaking the yeast in some water, that takes about 10 minutes. So I use that time to pace around the house anxiously and wonder where I put my shoes, then wonder why I want to find my shoes in the first place. But never mind that, because seriously, where are those shoes? By this time, the 10 minutes are up, the yeast is soaked, and it's time to combine the ingredients and knead the dough. This process takes about 10 minutes, and is followed by leaving the dough to rise for a little bit over an hour. This is the perfect amount of time to watch an episode of a television show that you have lost interest in, but for some reason want to finish the season of, because somehow that feels like accomplishing something. You might want to combine this activity with trying to get your pet to wear a hat. But if that feels like too much, don't worry about it. After all, remember, you're baking bread. By this time, the dough should have about doubled in size, so this is the most fun part. You get to punch down the dough and watch it deflate. I don't know about you, but I get relatively few opportunities to punch something as part of an act of creation, so I always relish this. Now you separate the dough into loaf pans and let it rise again, this time for about 45 minutes. You can use this time to Google image search visual aids for your list about butterfly names that sound like types of mustache names that you made a while ago. If you have some extra time, you can speculate as to which cast member of Cheers is probably the best at badminton but you might not have time. Incidentally, the answer is Ted Danson because he's tall, but Rio Perlman does surprisingly well. Now you top the bread with an egg wash, put it in the oven, and let it bake, which means you got another 45 minutes to kill. Spend the first five or six minutes of that looking for your shoes again before you give up. Then wonder whether or not you made up that one cartoon that you remember that nobody else seems to. You can look it up, but you're worried that if you did, you'd find out that it was racist in some way that you didn't remember. Look it up anyway. Yup, it was. Then spend some time fantasy recasting the TV show I, Claudius with video game characters. Would Bowser be better as Augustus or Tiberius? Well, you can figure that out later, because guess what, buddy? Your bread's done, and it's delicious. And if anybody asks how you spent the last three hours, you get to tell them, baking. Incidentally, with just a few variations, that is also pretty much my writing process. Also, my shoes were upstairs on a bookshelf. I put them there so that I would remember where I put them. Now, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by James Logsdon, and it is to be sung in the tune of a particular song. Ahem. <clears throat> Nightwing, Hulk, Rule, Stephen Strange, Greetings, Fools, Moon Knight, Aqualad, Natural Bozo. 
Damn it, Kyle Nebulon, listen for the gong, gingern, gerbil, skate, man, barn of disco. Ezekiel P. Shadow Maven, Spider-Man's Hunter Craven, Lunatic with a K, Hub likes Morris Day. It's Tighten Up the Defense. It's a comic podcast, not a football broadcast. It's Tighten Up the Defense. Can you guess what this is? It's a rhyme for a synopsis. Pretty good. Thanks, James. I think that's more or less the way the song goes, but it's been a while since I've heard scenes from an Italian restaurant. Defenders, number 71. May, 1979. Stranger and Stranger in a Strange Land. Written by Ed Hannigan. Drotted by Herb Trimpe. Inkted by Jack Abel. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored by Ben Sean. And edited by Al Milgram. Defensive Lineup. Valkyrie, Nighthawk, Hellcat, The Incredible Hulk, Doctor Strange, Clea. Previously in the Defenders. After returning from New England where they battled a super-powered tennis instructor, Doctor Strange and the Hulk departed on a secret mission to a strange and distant realm. Bye, Steve and the Hulk. Nighthawk learned that the Justice Department had been investigating some irregularities in his corporation's accounting and suspected the affluent avian aficionado of malfeasance. Naturally, Kyle responded by physically threatening the agents in charge of the investigation. Damn it, Kyle! In order to better familiarize herself with the strange ways of Midgard, asterisk Earth, Valkyrie enrolled in classes at Empire State University. Soon after arriving on campus, the sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger ran afoul of a hyper-violent campus vigilante named Lunatic with a K, who had been killing and maiming students for committing relatively minor infractions. Val and Lunatic with a K clashed on several occasions, but every time the undergrad Easier Amazon attempted to apprehend her overly aggressive adversary, the tracksuit and clown makeup clad Crumbum managed to escape. During one such scuffle, the mime-masked misanthrope hospitalized Val's classmate Ledge. While her contused cohort convalesced, Valkyrie made the acquaintance of Ledge's drama professor, a creepy jerk with a terrible goatee named Professor Harrison Turk. The professor had recently moved in with Val and Ledge's mutual friend, a garrulous trust fund kid named Dollar Bill. When the badly bearded academic wasn't busy fraternizing with his students, he dropped several strong hints that he was somehow connected to Lunatic with a K. At the end of her first semester, Valkyrie attended a college mixer. Soon after arriving, Val overheard a newly recovered ledge accuse Professor Turk of being lunatic with a K. Feigning insult, Turk fled the dance, but when Val followed him outside, the elusive educator was nowhere to be found. Concerned, the co-ed crime fighter explored the campus further and soon spotted lunatic with a K. The two fought and Valkyrie emerged victorious and took the athleisure-attired asshole as her captive. Hooray! Nearby, Hellcat, who had been attending the dance as Val's guest, also fought, defeated, and captured Lunatic with a K. Hooray? Two Lunatic with a Ks? Not exactly, for in another part of the university grounds, Nighthawk had a similar experience. The three defenders converged on the quad, each with a defeated Lunatic with a K in tow. As a crowd of curious students gathered around them, our perplexed protagonist puzzled aloud over their preponderance of prisoners. From the depths of the crowd, the strident voice of Professor Harrison Turk rose above the din. Addressing our heroes, the badly bearded blowhard declared, I can explain everything, for I am lunatic with a K. Gadzooks! To where did Stephen the Hulk scurry off? Now that they've finally captured Lunatic with a K, what will the defenders do with their murder-happy prisoners? 
And where did all these lunatic with a K's come from, anyway? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... A bizarre dimension filled with hobbits, giant lizard birds, and space werewolves. Help him reassume leadership of an empire. And a bizarre dimension filled with hobbits, giant lizard birds, and space werewolves. Professor Harrison Turk takes the Defenders, the three captive lunatic with the Ks, and for some reason Legend Dollar Bill, to an empty lecture hall, so that he can have an appropriate venue to explain what the fuck is going on. He is a drama professor after all. Once they are all properly seated, Turk takes his place at the lectern and is like, So here's the deal. My name is Arisen Turk, and I used to be the emperor of a strange planet. I lived in a big old floating castle, and everybody loved me and worshipped me as a god. It was great. Then the dumb old space werewolf barbarian and his buddies beat me up and took all my stuff. Oh, well, that explains everything. Wait, no it doesn't. Ledge is like, this is a bunch of stupid bullshit. I found a lunatic with a K outfit in this guy's apartment. He is a liar, he sucks, and he almost killed me. Can you just arrest him already? Dollar Bill is like, nah, Professor Turk is awesome. If he almost killed Ledge for no reason, I'm sure he had a good reason. Arisen Turk continues his story. So after the space werewolf and his pals liberated the realm from my tyrannical rule, I, I mean, um overthrew my benign regime, they left me for dead. Only I wasn't dead. I crawled over to this interdimensional transporter and tried to use it to escape. Only the machine was all smashed up, so it only kinda worked. It beamed me up to this weird plane of reality full of magic space mirrors. But all the mirrors were broken and they refracted my personality into a bunch of different pieces. The next thing I knew, I woke up in Times Square. I was penniless and didn't know anyone, but fortunately, despite having no references, I was able to talk my way into this job as a drama professor at ESU. Wow. That does not speak well of ESU's performing arts department. I sure hope it's not a tenure-track position. Ledge interrupts and is like, So you have, like, hypnotic powers or something? Turk replies, No, I have a little something called gumption, you slacker. Anyway, things were going great, but then another me showed up. It was lunatic with a K. I figured out that each facet of my personality had manifested its own body. I'm the reasonable, charismatic side of my personality that has an affinity for shitty facial hair. This new guy was the side of me that liked to beat up strangers with a metal pole and murder anyone who breaks the law even a little bit. And some people who didn't. Also, I guess he likes TV or pop culture or something. Of course, I knew that what he was doing was a little uncool, and I wish he wasn't so into killing people, but I decided to help him out and take care of him anyway. I mean, he's kind of me, and I love me some me. It turned out every full moon another side of my personality would show up. The next aspect was a different part of me, who also liked to beat up strangers with a metal pole, murder scarf laws, and acontextually reference pop culture. But the next month, another part of my personality showed up. This one liked to beat up strangers with a metal pole, murder scoff laws, and a contextually reference pop culture. Those three versions of me kept going out at night and killing people. I wish they'd stop doing that, but what can you do? I've half a mind to stop feeding, clothing, taking care of them, and helping them escape capture. But that seems a little harsh. So, in summation, I am clearly blameless. 
At the end of his exposition dump, everyone except Ledge, who for some reason is still holding a grudge about having his skull caved in, agrees that Professor Turk is a pretty great guy. Uh, okay. Kyle is like, hey, what if we could track down all the different facets of your personality and squish you back into a single dude? Then you could go back to ruling made up a stand or wherever. I mean, from what we've seen so far, you're only three quarters incoherent murderous fuckwit. That puts you way ahead of the curve for world leaders. Turk agrees that that sounds like a pretty good plan, so they all head over to the Sanctum Sanctimonious to see if Steve can send them back to Lunatic with a K's dimension so they can look for other pieces of his personality. Meanwhile, downtown, the two Justice Department agents who are in charge of the Richmond Enterprises investigation discuss the fact that Kyle is a total asshole and probably guilty. Fair enough. When the defenders arrive at the Sanctum, they're surprised that Steve isn't there. Clea explains that he and the Hulk left in a hurry on a secret mission, but it's like, you know what? I'm pretty great at magic. I mean, I'm not as good at being patronizing and dismissive as Steve is, but maybe I could fill in for him on this adventure. The gang agrees that that sounds fine, so Clea says some mystic nonsense and zaps them all through a portal into a weirdo mystic realm. It's a pretty cool looking place. A little Middle Earthy, but also kind of journey to the center of the earth. Nighthawk decides to scout ahead a little bit. Yeah, good plan. I definitely want an alien species' first interaction with humanity to be with Kyle. I mean, everyone they meet after that will be a pleasant surprise. kind of like the idea of a first encounter scenario being an opportunity to lower expectations. Kyle spots a dayglow-attired wizard accompanied by a big purple fuzzy dude, but when he swoops down for a closer look, they're nowhere to be seen. Weird. Not too far from where he thought he saw this disappearing duo, Nighthawk finds a village of some hobbity-looking dudes. The billionaire-do-well-bird enthusiast starts to fly down to introduce himself, but the villagers, who speak in a combination of backwards words and apparent gibberish, shout the word NILFIM and flee Kyle in terror, throwing rocks at him. Which is weird, because I thought they hadn't met him before. Discouraged by this reception, Kyle flies back to regroup with Val, Patsy, Clea, and the lunatic with a K's. He finds that they have met up with a caravan of the local hobbitsy folks, and that they all seem to be getting along fairly well. In an uncharacteristic display of good sense, Kyle lands discreetly a little ways off so as not to freak anybody out. Clea casts a translation spell so that they can all understand each other. Nice. I bet Steve would have just kept repeating himself slower and louder. Once they are all able to converse, the leader of the caravan explains that they are refugees who have been fleeing the forces of a cruel and unjust king. Hmm. Suddenly, one of the refugees points skyward and yells the word, NILFIM! in terror. Damn it, Kyle! No, wait, sorry about that. Turns out that NILFIM is the word for the awesome-looking giant lizard birds that the evil king's royal air force ride around on. The villagers had previously mistaken Kyle's eccentric attire for one of the beasts, which was why they had all lost their shit when they saw him. Unfortunately, the creature that the alarmed hobbit-esque guy spots this time is no mere Kyle. It is a for-real Nilfim. In fact, it's a whole bunch of Nilfim-riding royal jerks who are about to attack the caravan. The bird-riding bullies swoop down and start marauding in the name of King Arizen Tirk. Ah... There we go. 
A fierce battle erupts, and in the ensuing mayhem, Professor Turk frees the other lunatic with a case from their shackles and directs them to ambush his erstwhile allies. One of them bonks Clea on the head, and the rest gang up to ambush Hellcat, knocking the ferocious feline freedom fighter unconscious before using the confusion of battle to make their escape. Shitty. Valkyrie, atop her winged steed Aragorn, follows the frenetic fugitives as they flee the fray. From a nearby hilltop, that Dayglow wizard and his fuzzy purple pal watch the battle unfold. The purple dude wants in on the action. In a familiar, condescending voice, his colorful companion is like, Fine, go ahead and help your friends. It'll mess up all my carefully laid unnecessarily complicated plans, but so be it, behemoth. With that, the purple guy leaps into the sky. In midair, his appearance shimmers, and he is suddenly revealed to be everyone's favorite jade giant, the Incredible Hulk. Hooray! Hulk smashes the shit out of all the giant lizard birds. Hooray! Once the brief aerial battle is concluded, the Dayglow wizard drops his disguise and reveals himself to be Doctor Strange. Yeah, you don't say. Steve turns to lecture Kyle and Clea, telling them, The entire universe is in grave danger, and you may have jeopardized it further due to your ignorance of the plans which I never told you about because I said there wasn't any time. Clea's like, I'm so sorry. So what are these plans? Steve replies, There's no time! To be continued. I bet Steve's just cranky because Professor Turk got to spend more time lecturing the defenders in this issue than he did. Don't worry, buddy. I'm sure you can waste everyone's time with way too much unnecessary exposition next issue, okay? You feel better? And as eagle-brained listeners will remember, my good-for-many-things brother, Corey, wanted to find out how Charles Nelson Riley performed a certain magic trick, so he followed him backstage, and wouldn't you know it, accidentally fell into his enormous magician's hat that was a portal to another dimension. Now Corey's trapped in a world filled with sentient anthropomorphic hats. That's, that's maybe my worst nightmare. I didn't know that was the thing. Ah! Oh, get me out of this place. Fortunately, he is still able to talk to us through that original giant hat portal. Uh, so, reporting direct from Lidsville, Corey, how's it going? Ah, uh, pretty good, I guess. <laughs> None of these, these hats won't shut up, though. Pretty annoying. Yeah, that's their way. If the talking fedora tries to give you a brochure or show you any close-up magic, just keep walking. Uh, but, uh, yeah, otherwise, things are good. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm doing okay, all things considered. You want to just dive right in and start talking about this comic book? Yeah, why not? Okay. Man, this issue was a real turd, huh? Uh, I don't know if I had as strong of a negative feeling about it. The title certainly resonated with me and where we are at collectively and where I am at physically in this hat dimension. That's true. It is a very good title. I will give it that. And I didn't hate everything about it. It just, I found reading this comic book to be a very frustrating experience. Oh, were you doing the expecting everything to line up and have continuity and make sense thing again? I mean, that was part of it. Uh, sure. But let, let's talk about the good first. Stranger and Stranger in a Strange Land. 
That is a quality title. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about everything else. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So yeah, I I think fundamentally one of my big problems was that it didn't make a ton of sense or line up with previous continuity. Independent of that, it just kind of didn't work. You look at the fact that the first 11 pages of the story take place in a lecture room where our heroes are being lectured by the supervillain. That is a ton of exposition as a way to start things off. And it starts you off in this kind of mire of, wait, what's going on? Where it's super dense in terms of the words that are happening. And that makes the pictures smaller and the detail isn't there for the smaller pictures necessarily. And then throughout the comic book, there is just so much exposition and it is so very dense. And it starts this chain reaction where I feel like that much physical words being on each page really affects the quality of the artwork as well and forces the art team to do a lot of like farther away, like wide angle type shots just so that you can work around where the words need to go. And also because it's describing like big scenes and setting up new scenarios. And that kind of makes you feel more removed from the story. And the story also doesn't make a ton of sense. Yeah, I think those are all fair criticisms. Um, I definitely, even starting with the cover, thought that the artwork in this was a little subpar for what we're used to. Do you think that part of the reason things got away from us narrative-wise and art-wise had to do with when they first started it out. Did you notice the way that the um, the creative staff, they gave themselves all like courtroom titles? I did notice that and I, it seemed odd. Yeah, instead of listing the creative staff as penciler, inker, editor, letterer, etc., it's court reporter, official artist, court scrivener, color guard, bailiffs, which can be fun, but it was a little bit confusing. It also like kind of confused me because I was like, oh, they're in a courtroom and they're proceeding as though they're in a courtroom, but they're very much in a lecture hall at the university. But back to something you mentioned a little bit earlier, I gotta say, I liked the cover, I think, more than you did. I thought it was actually a pretty good cover. It's a different inker for the cover than it is for the interior art. Uh, For the interior art, it's an inker named Jack Abel, who was a veteran and generally, I think, works pretty well with Herb Trempe. They specifically have a lot of experience drawing the Hulk together and, in fact, were the art team that did the issue of the Hulk that saw the premiere of Wolverine and also, more importantly, saw the first time the Hulk ate beans. Ah, classic. Yeah, so I would have liked to see a little bit more of the Hulk in this and a little bit more bean eating. But yeah, like I said, I really felt like it's the nature of the story leading the art in a direction that wasn't as satisfying going on in this. Generally, I feel like Jack Abel does some pretty clean ink work, but this felt a little bit muddy. Uh, I don't know to what extent it was rushed and to what extent it was just, there is so much happening in this issue. Yeah, it's. I tried to let it wash over me a bit because sometimes that helps with not being annoyed at what you're reading. I did feel like the idea of this kind of mirror dimension that Professor Turk gets stuck in is an interesting one Mm -hmm. and could be pretty cool. But yeah, the way it was executed left you with more questions than, um, you know, it was just difficult to like let it slide and be like, oh, okay, that's what happened. Yeah, well, it just kept piling new stuff 
onto things. Like, like I said, it starts off with like the 11 pages of exposition that is filling in Professor Turk's backstory or Arisen Turk. And a lot of that is a summary of two issues of Marvel Premiere that had come out about a year before this that were written by David Kraft. And I actually went ahead and read those, and those were really fun. If you get a chance to, I would recommend checking those out because they're the story of a space werewolf barbarian god fighting Arizan Turk, who is this despotic leader who has magic and, and science, like a Thulsa Doom type character from Conan, or a Ming the Merciless type of guy. And it's super fun. And also, the space werewolf barbarian is J. Jonah Jameson's son, who's an astronaut. What? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, I, I liked the uh, the wolf dudes, or dog men, or I, those guys. It's just the one guy, actually. That is just Man-Wolf, who is also called Star God in that story. And yeah, it's J. Jonah Jameson's astronaut son, who finds a magic moon rock, and then it sticks on his skin and turns him into a werewolf. And while he's on Earth, it's a savage moon wolf that is trying to destroy everything that he cares about. But that's just because only some of the energy comes through the portal from this other universe that the rock is from. Uh, and it's enough to turn him into the physical appearance of that guy and change his bestial nature, but not enough to imbue him with godhood and wisdom, which he gets when he goes there. And that's when he ends up fighting Arizan Turk, who is a real dickhole who kills a lot of people and chops a lot of people's hands off. Oh, man. Yeah, I guess I thought there was more of the wolf guy because or guys, because um, maybe it's just a coloration issue on page three there's two panels next to each other and in one it's uh he's all white and one he's a, a darker color yeah i think that may have been a shading thing or may have just been a miscommunication with the colorist because there are a few issues like that within the comic book where i wasn't sure if something was supposed to be an actual change of color or an issue of shading but yeah there is just the one man wolf and he is white furred oh okay I didn't think her styles were hereditary, but he does have a little bit of the Jameson flat top going on there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Ha haircuts are definitely hereditary. It's just odd because usually flat tops are recessive. Or maybe it's just his hairline. Maybe that's it. Yeah, those issues, too, are drawn by George Perez and are really fucking gorgeous. Yeah, cool. I'll check them out. Yeah, it provides kind of a counterpoint to these stories because like this, there is probably a little bit too much going on in the story and it feels kind of compressed but it's not the same like barrage of narrative and also it's george perez's art so it's not overwhelming in the same way mm -hmm. i'll tell you one thing and that's that uh the more i hear from dollar bill the less i like the guy man i had the same note i wrote down db is a real db <laughs> Zing. What a piece of shit. Yeah. He is just all in on Team Professor Turk at this point, to the point where he's just like, oh, that is really uncool of you, Ledge, to still be upset that he hospitalized you for months and then flunked you. Yeah, Ledge is like the only guy in this. I wish I could have given him best defender. Yeah, although even he is briefly swayed by Professor Turk's testimony. Well, he is a drama teacher. That's true. 
very persuasive. Well, he must be. Okay, so that's another thing that actually follows through from the Marvel premiere issues, is in those, Arisen Turk comes to Earth and kidnaps Man-Wolf's wife to use as a hostage and uses the alias Harrison Turk. So that is a name that is known to the authorities and is known to the media because J. Jonah Jameson knows it. Mm. And so then he comes back and it's just like, I'll just use the same name. It sounds kind of like my first name. So I don't think anybody will make the connection that I look just like that guy. Well, I guess he's got different makeup. Or is he wearing flesh-colored makeup when he's the professor? Yeah, I don't quite understand the difference between Turk 1 and subsequent Turks. Yeah, but either way, the fact that he doesn't change his alias at all. When he talks his way into a job as a drama professor at a fairly prestigious university. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ledge makes the allegation early on that he has some like Lamont Cranston type powers that he must be using, like Mm -hmm. to cloud men's minds like the shadow. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there kind of has to be some level of that going on if we are to suspend our disbelief that everyone is just going to go along with him on this, like, oh, well, yeah, he did murder a lot of people, or at the very least aided and abetted a murderer and allowed him to continue his killings. But you know what? He seems like a pretty good guy. So we'll take his word that a space werewolf stole his planet. Yeah, and his explanation, too, for when Ledge says something about that he's got these, like, the shadow type powers his response was i i felt like a very like go america response where he's just like oh you wouldn't understand this it's called initiative <laughs> you know you lazy beatnik that's that's kind of the feel i got yeah a combination of that and oh you're just being silly you wouldn't understand it's a very simple explanation there was a space werewolf who stole my kingness Yeah, and then I had the initiative to come to Earth and get a job as his drama teacher. (laughs) Ledge, get with it. Really pulled myself up by my space bootstraps. Yep, try and keep up, guys. Come on. What a turd. Absolutely. And, sorry, just while I'm on the rant, this whole thing of like, yeah, I know my clones were like out there murdering people and that's bad, but they were me. (laughs) What could I do? That is the worst defense (laughs) ever. I mean, you've met me. You know how great I am. (laughs) Clearly, you just need to let them go on their murderous rampages whenever there is a full moon. Yeah, he could have at least werewolfed them, you know, like tied them up and like tried to keep them inside. Mm -hmm. But instead, he just seems to adopt a policy of, well, if you just let them get all the murder out of their system, then they'll calm down eventually. Ugh. Yeah, Yeah. I also really wish they had maybe laid more of the groundwork if they're going to do the, like, different facets of his personality, Herman's head type approach to this story, because it is kind of a neat story idea. But when there were the three different lunatics, none of them were acting at all differently. Like, they all acted the same, they all spoke the same. They weren't showing different facets of a personality. And at that point, I think he knew that that was what he was going to try to do with the characters, so why not try to do that? Also, there's no attempt to address the power disparity in the portrayal of the lunatic character. Like, before, all of the defenders combined couldn't defeat him, and now each of them singly can defeat 
each one of them in combat, even Nighthawk. So what's going on with that? Uh, so many questions. Mm. And one answer. Boo! <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So in addition to the main story and Professor Turk being uh, such a piece of shit, there was some kind of fun stuff going on and some stuff that I really liked. And mainly, I liked Clea in this story. She floats the idea that she's maybe going to try to join the Defenders, and I love that idea. I love the idea of her taking Steve's role, and I hope that happens. Yeah, I made a note of that as well. She is way more powerful than she. I feel like she's given credit for magically. Yeah, I mean, she's from the Dark Dimension, and she really, I mean, she's kind of Steve's student as well as his lover. A, the, a whole concept and sentence that makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> But she has a lot of powers in her own regard and uses them pretty well in this issue. I feel like in the past when she's done stuff, there has just been this kind of paternalistic condescending thing towards her where it's like, oh, well, you shouldn't have done those spells that you did because you didn't have all the information that you needed. But, you know, good job nonetheless. I feel like there's that kind of tone towards her using her powers. And there is that a little bit in this, too, at the end, where she's like, oh, I never should have used my powers to come here. But the only reason she made the mistake was because Steve didn't give her the information that he needed to. And there was no reason like th that he just rushed off the way that he did without filling her in on what was happening. I feel like he does that all the time, and there was no reason for that this time. Yeah, he did a bad job. And I read his berating of her on that last page even more harshly than you did in particular because in the second to last panel the way that it's drawn it looks like he's like shaking his fist at her like honeymooners style <laughs> oh geez like uh one of these days clear pow zoom to the many moons of moonapore yeah i know he's probably not either that or he's doing the jerk off motion but either way <laughs> Either way, that's not a great move. Not cool, Steve. <laughs> Another thing that Steve did that kind of cracked me up in this issue is that when they travel to this other dimension where they're going around and exploring things, why is he wearing a disguise? Like, I get if he wants to dress like a native, but he doesn't need to dress like an old man with a long white beard. He's not famous there. <laughs> Dude, that disguise is my favorite part of this whole issue. <laughs> I love that. He's like, okay, Hulk, you're going to be like a space gorilla, and I'm going right. to be like space Gandalf with cool yoga pants. <laughs> uh, yeah, why are we dressing up like this? I just think it'll be fun. Yep, he's totally space Gandalf in yoga pants. Here. <laughs> yeah. Although that was another aspect in which the artwork, I felt like, let me down a little bit. Because anytime you see Steve and the Hulk, and we see them, they pop up earlier. Nighthawk spots them when they're first landing on the weird tunnel planet place where they end up. And then they show up again at the end. And they're kind of shrouded or in shadow. And there's no reason for that. If they're using a transformation spell and are heavily disguised... I want to see those disguises so that I can get that they're in disguise and it's not just them standing in the shadows. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, like, is the Hulk some kind of, like, owl bear type thing? I, I couldn't quite figure out what his disguise was because he's only shown shrouded and in shadows until he transforms back into the Hulk. Is he just, like, a shaggy purple version of himself? 
Yeah, in in my copy, like it's on page twenty seven is probably the best view. Yeah, he's just kind of like shaggy and hairy. He's not really wearing clothes, and he's he's sort of grayish purple, and he's got uh, three toes. Mm. So that's a good disguise. Yeah, that is a good disguise. But the one that I was talking about, where it looks more like the owl bear, is the one where you see him first on page sixteen. Oh yeah, like in profile as they're walking along. Yeah, doesn't he look kind of like a fuzzy purple owl bear? I could see that. Yeah, I don't know. I just would have liked to see what kind of disguise he's wearing. And it seems odd that they chose that disguise where when we see the villagers, none of them look like that. Like if you want to blend in, wouldn't you want to look like one of the villagers? Yeah, one would think. That means you got to wear a vest. And possibly be hobbit-sized? That that was another thing that was confusing. I, I hate to keep harping on this, but where all of the shots that we see of the villagers of the natives of this dimension that they land on are either wide angle or shot from above or something. You don't really get a sense of the scale of these characters. And so I wasn't sure if they were supposed to be hobbit-sized. There seemed to be things that were implying that, but it's never made completely clear. The biggest clue that we have is one of them is firing a bow and arrow by using his feet and pulling back the bow with his arms. And I would have liked to have seen more shit like that. Yeah, I I gathered that they were short folks because on page 17, they're all drawn, like coming up to hip height compared to the defenders. I wasn't sure if that was just a matter of perspective because that panel seems to be presented from such a long distance away. And it's a little bit hard to tell. Mm. Um, Yeah, I think you're right. That is the one where we get closest to see a sense of scale for them. But I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of that. Also, one of the things that I found maybe the most frustrating in this whole issue was their foreign language that they're using because it was inconsistent and it was like an impossible to solve puzzle that I thought I had solved at first because at first they're saying words backwards. And so I was reading those and I was like, oh, that's kind of clever. And then it turned into something else. And I kept trying to decode what the later dialogue was that was almost written like it was words backwards, but not quite. And I feel like there must have been some in-joke there that was just, to me at least, completely inscrutable. And I spent way too much time looking at that. Which, I, you know, I tried reading them backwards first off <laughs> also. And... I wasn't able to ring sense of that on page 17. Is there an earlier instance of, of them saying stuff? No, it's on page 17, when Nighthawk first shows up, they are saying, Niflim, Yanapmok, which is Niflim, company. And then he says, Nasir Amma, which is American backwards. So he's like, company, American Oh, I see. I see. So the syllables are broken onto separate lines, making them into different words. Right, which was why I was proud of myself for figuring out how to read it. And then he says, uh, Niflim, dictionary, or dictionary backwards. And so I was like, oh, this is fun. I'll I'll keep looking for these words. Um, And then the next thing that he says, which is, Noth, Goa, Niflim, Essa, Ug, Nal, which is, Houghton Mifflin language. Houghton Mifflin is a book publisher uh, that <laughs> publishes textbooks and dictionaries. And so <laughs> I was like, oh, this is clever. This is fun. And then they kept using uh, Niflim. They they made that the name of the giant birds that are attacking mm-hmm. are called Mifflins to, to lend some continuity to it. And I'm like, oh, that's really fun. And then you get to the next page where 
some different hobbitses are talking with Val and Clea and Hellcat, and I couldn't figure out what it was that they were saying. If that was just gibberish, it didn't read the same way, and I couldn't find the same jokes. And because they had set the precedent that this was how that worked, I found that so frustrating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, as somebody who's worked in the field of translation and, you know, touching on linguistics and all this stuff over the past couple decades, I was very unhappy that if magic using folks like Clea do have access to this universal translation incantation that they haven't shared it with the world. Oh, well, Corey, I'm sure those spells are proprietary. There's probably some pretty hefty licensing fees involved. But but you're right, they should at least have them available for sale. Or just maybe used it when they first showed up instead of waiting for a while to see if they could figure out what the people were saying. I know. She gets, she lets, She's like testing everybody. Val's like, let's see. I know these five languages, but uh, nope. And then she's like, oh, okay. Well, then I guess I'll do uh, my rhyming magic which is not a thing she has ever done before. I didn't know that rhyming magic was a thing in Stephen Clea's discipline. So that kind of came out of left field, but it was a fun little poem that she recited about language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, large folk and small folk and folk in between. Covers all different sizes. Yep, <laughs> nice work. Very inclusive, Cleo. And when she does that, it's one of the few panels where we see a close-up of her face, and it's a really gorgeously drawn panel. And that was part of what I found frustrating, because at that point, you kind of connect a little bit more with Clea in a way that you don't get to when it's all of these, like, faraway shots of action that are shot from above and stuff. Yeah, I like her new simplified hairstyle without the super curly Q bangs. I kind of miss the bang pretzels, but I guess it's fine. I'm sure it was a lot of work. Yeah. Wait, for her or the artist? I was saying for her, but I guess both. Yeah. There was one other thing about Clea that actually really amused me and raised some questions for me, some of which you might have some insight into. When the Defenders first show up at the Sanctum and are asking for her help, well, first of all, I like that she takes one look at them and is like, uh, Wong, make us some tea. These guys are fucking talkers. Yeah, I like the way that she... She phrases it, too, which is something I'd like to put into my repertoire if I'm feeling like being passive-aggressive, where she says, I sense a long story in the offing. Yeah, it's pretty good. But she has another turn of phrase here, which when she first teleports them to the new dimension, she says, If I calculated aright, Turk's other selves are in the immediate vicinity. The aright instead of right or correctly. Like, that's a dialect thing. Is she doing a ridiculous Italian accent at that point? Is the dark dimension accent kind of like a stereotypical over-the-top Italian accent? Or, and this is the part that maybe you can help me out with, does traveling through portals and through tunnels, like in some kind of a tube or pipe, naturally give you a Mario accent? I don't know. I guess you're going to have to ask Marissa Tomei about that. <laughs> I know. I shared with Corey a little while ago that I read on the internet, Marissa Tomei is an anagram for It's a Me Mario, which I think is delightful. But uh, you've traveled through a fair amount of dimensions recently. Do you find yourself wanting to talk like a mobster in Black Belt Jones? 
Um, yeah, but I can't necessarily attribute that to the interdimensional travel because that's pretty much happened since I first saw the movie back in the maybe early 90s. Yeah, I mean, Mamma Mia, I'm trying to eat my spaghetti over here. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> it it makes Mario's speech naturalistic, but I love the idea that that is Clea's natural dark dimension accent. And so throughout this issue, I started reading her talking that way, and it made it a lot more fun. Oh, that is a... You should have texted that to me so I could have read along. <laughs> that would have helped this book a little bit. It did. Oh no, Valkyrie and Hellcat, they've disappeared, and so have our captives. I'm gonna win. <laughs> ha! Ah, this spell shall be a sealed. They could be anywhere on this whole world. Ha! Oh, Clea. Stop being so mean to Italians with your terrible accent. It's a natural side effect of dimension hopping. It's just inevitable. Yeah. Speaking of characters whose speech patterns was a little bit jarring to me, it seems like... Hellcat has been turned up to 11 in this issue in terms of sounding now like she is straight out of the Hardy Boys. Like, that was always a facet of some of the fun slang that she would use, but now she is just straight up Chet, the Hardy Boys husky pal, and says like, golly and gee whiz, so much in this issue. Did you notice that as well? I did notice it, and I also attributed it to the dimension that they're in, because it just seems to be messing with people in different ways, but a lot of which has to do with the language processing parts of their brains. Ah, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. You would have thought that maybe she had built up a little bit of immunity to it with her various dimension hopping using the Shadow Cloak, which she inexplicably decided not to bring with her. Yeah, that was a bad call on her part. No, I, I think it's though specifically with this world that they find themselves in. Hmm. That would make sense, actually, that like, yeah, much like Turk, it just augments different aspects of people's characters and specifically their speech patterns. Because, yeah, like we see Professor Turk say to the other of his Herman's head counterparts, you guys can knock it off with that fucking jargon now that we're home. And they don't. They keep on making ridiculous pop culture references. And I liked the fact that it annoyed the shit out of him, too. Yeah. Shazbutt. Shazbutt indeed, Corey. Also, at some point, he started wearing makeup or stopped wearing makeup again so that he now matches the rest of his counterparts. I couldn't figure out exactly when that transition happened or why. Maybe it was a result of the dimensional travel. But once... He is still dressed like Professor Turk, but is wearing the mime makeup. It makes him look kind of like a more professorial version of Frankenstein's creature. You know, he's got the blazer on, but it's a blazer that has elbow pads, sort of. But his face looks more Frankenstein-y. And it was uh, kind of jarring, but also a little bit funny to me. So in a sense, I appreciated it, but I would have liked somebody else that was traveling with him to notice that that had happened, that that change had happened, or for him to be like, finally, I can wipe off this peach-colored makeup that I've been wearing. Yeah, it's, it is odd that nobody notices that. He's much more uh, evil-looking with the white skin and domino mask eyes with no pupils. Well, I mean, kind of. It's, it's a trade-off because he does have the scary clown makeup now, but... He doesn't have the shitty Dr. Light goatee. So 
It's kind of a lateral move at best. Touche. Was there anything else you wanted to bring up before we got into the minutiae? Oh, just that there is one little itsy-bitsy bit in there to tie back into Nighthawk's uh, troubles with the perceived financial malfeasance back on Earth, and really seems like the uh, Justice Department is out for blood now. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? Good for them. We get like two panels of that. I hope that becomes more of a storyline going forward and isn't just another thing that they're going to drop. But I like the idea that they're now thinking like, well, he's being weird and defensive for no reason, because not knowing him, they don't know that he's just a super asshole. And they're right, there isn't any reason for him to be acting that way. So they should maybe assume that he had scapegoated pennies worth rather than the other way around back when, you know, his company was diverting funds to a snake-themed arsonist hate group, Mm -hmm. which I think should put a red flag on his finances. (laughs) You think? Yeah. So we'll see where that goes. Indeed. Well, Rick, would you sing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Yeah, thank you, Rick. So, Corey, what do you want to start off with? Why don't we just start at the top of the list with the best and the worst? All right. Every issue of a Defenders comic book has a best defender and also a worst offender. In this issue, who was the best defender? So, I kept it pretty straightforward, and uh, though he didn't get a lot of time on the page, I gave it to the Hulk for just taking decisive action and jumping into the fray to try and save his friends. I think that's a solid choice. I decided to go with Clea. I liked that she took the initiative and is realizing what a douche lord Steve has been acting like and wants to strike out on her own. She provided the translation for the team, although it was a little bit belated, and she successfully teleported them to another dimension and also got some good passive-aggressive digs in at Turk and Nighthawk for, you know, being a little bit too into exposition. Plus, I like her fun new Super Mario accent. So I decided to go with Clea, but uh, I, I think that the Hulk is also a pretty solid choice there. All right. Two good choices. Conversely, who did you have as the worst offender? Yeah, so it stems from pretty much the same scene in which the Hulk springs into action. And uh, Steve, in his space Gandalf disguise, says, well, you know, you're the Hulk, I can't stop you, but it's going to fuck up all my carefully wrought plans. Why don't we just let our friends get their asses kicked? (laughs) And that, and the fact that he took off to this dimension leaving Clea without enough information to do things 100% properly. Not cool. Yeah, and we saw that like he left in a super hurry last issue, and now it seems like he's just been kind of backpacking around this dimension for a few days. There wasn't the need for that hasty departure. He could have explained why he was leaving and where he was going. It was uh, taking some time to get acquainted with the halfling's pipe weed. 
I think that certainly might be the case. I also did just think it was pretty funny that he decided, like, oh, yes, I'm not this beautiful face is known everywhere. If I'm going to a strange dimension, I'd better disguise myself as one of the locals by being a really old dude who is otherwise completely human in every way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bad job, man. And, like, he didn't change his character's height at all. Like, he didn't dress up like one of the hobbitses or anything. He's just like, oh, no, I'll be a cool-looking wizard. That'll be fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then at the end, he kind of berates Clea for doing a bad job and shakes his fist at her also. Boo. Not a great job, Steve. I I think that is certainly a fair choice. I decided to go with Hellcat. It came down to, for me, either Val or Hellcat. And Nighthawk was kind of in the mix, too, but I think overall he did a slightly better job. But all three of them decided that, oh, yeah, this guy Harrison Turk's plan seems pretty reasonable. I mean, we know that one aspect of him that we are trying to reunite is a vicious murderer. And the other aspects of him like murderers, at least, and help them get away. But, yeah, this story seems like it totally holds up. Yeah, we'll get more into that in a little bit, but that just seemed completely inexplicable that they would just be like, yeah, he seems trustworthy. Let's help him reassume his throne. And then in addition to that, and the reason that I went with Hellcat as opposed to any of the others, she gets captured and she gets captured in part because she has this fantastic weapon that she loves, the Shadow Cloak, and she doesn't bring it with her, which I would have been more forgiving of if she didn't bring up the fact that she forgot the shadow cloak and decided not to bring it with her for reasons that she doesn't explain. Like, she hasn't had that with her for a while now. She didn't bring it with her to Asgard. She didn't bring it with her or use it at all in the adventure before that. I thought that the writer had just kind of forgotten about it, and I think that is the case, and that had led me to kind of forget about it, too. If she's not going to use it, I don't know why she brought it up that she wasn't using it. All fair points. So, yeah, I decided to go with Hellcat on this one. In a similar vein, every issue of a Defenders comic has at least one character who has to act out of character in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker. In this issue, who did you have as your sucker? For the sucker in this issue, I had Kyle... In particular, because he was part of the committee that decided it was a good idea to hear Turk out and follow through on uniting the facets of his person back into one. But in particular, because he was one of the, I guess you could say, voice of reason in the initial uh, classroom trial, where basically he and Dollar Bill were like the team that was like, hey, shut up, everybody, let a... Let Turk tell his side of the story. And that seemed very much not like uh, Kyle's typical thing. Yeah, I think he would have naturally judged Turk, particularly because he had had his ass kicked by him before, you know, much more harshly. Yeah, I feel that that is definitely the case. And I was tempted to go with Nighthawk, both for that reason and because he sat through a lecture class, which we've seen (laughs) from his previous college career is not something that he was very keen on doing. Not into it. Yeah. But I decided to go with Valkyrie for very similar reasons. Also, she decides to go along with Lunatic with a K's plan in this regard. That did not sit right with me. Previously, we have seen that Lunatic with a K is pretty much 
I mean, maybe discounting Jack Norris, the closest to a nemesis that Valkyrie has. So to have her just go along with and be like, yeah, let's help this guy out. Let's help him rule a dimension again. That seemed wildly out of character for her. Yep. Good point. Thank you. What was your pie not made out of steel for this issue? What words did you enjoy, much like you would enjoy a pie, were it not made out of steel? I had a couple choices. I didn't translate, you know, we've got company as cleverly as you did. Oh, well, thank you. But (laughs) I interpreted it as him saying, look at that flying bozo, (laughs) which I I thought that was a a pretty good metaphor. Yeah. Which ties into my favorite words, and I suspect what you might have been leading up to, which is the people investigating Kyle Richmond saying, it's time a grand jury clipped this flying bozo's wings. Yes, yes, indeed. That is what I was what I was getting at. That was pretty good. Yeah, that is uh, the undisputed choice, obviously, for the best words in the issue. There were some other ones. I liked when Clea talked like Super Mario. I thought that was fun. Mm-hmm. I liked her little rhyme that she had. Large folk and small folk and folk in between all have a way to tell what they have seen. By the powers that beckon, by the powers that reach, let each of these folk understand the other's speech. I liked the Hobbits' enunciation of the Houghton Mifflin uh, dictionary talk. But that did lead to them saying other words that were genuine nonsense, which really pissed me off. So eh, kind of a mixed bag there. And and primarily, anybody threatening to clip the wings of a flying bozo like Kyle Richmond is going to get the nod from me. Fair enough. We have an accord. Which elements of fashion did you feel were most noteworthy in this issue? Sartorially speaking, what would you like to talk about? Oh, man, it's come up already, but those yoga pants that Steve is wearing with his Space Gandalf getup are bonkers. They have large intersecting rings on them, and they're, like, bright orange. It's a pretty wacky outfit. Yeah, that's how you do in other dimensions. We've seen the interlocking circles be part of Clea's leggings in the past, too. So I wonder if he's just like, oh, yes, that's how you have to do things in other dimensions. I'm sorry, that's how you have to uh, do uh, things when you travel uh, to another uh, dimension, uh, Mamma Mia. It's a me, a Steve. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah. I liked that outfit, too. I also liked the outfit of a character who I called Pastel Tough Guy Hobbit. (laughs) There's one of the hobbits who is, like, just wearing a scowl on his face. He's got a big old, like, kind of cowboy hat, but not quite cowboy. More like the, I don't know, the tough bartender in a cowboy movie might be wearing that kind of a big hat. But he's wearing one of those, and he's got a pink vest on and a scowl on his face and he just looks like super tough and i like that he's super tough and wearing a lot of pastel i just thought that was a good look for him (laughs) it sounded at the beginning of that like you're gonna say wear nothing but a scowl and a cowboy hat (laughs) uh i missed i missed that panel (laughs) no 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 he was also wearing a pink vest yeah (laughs) oh and probably other clothes too but who can tell Mm. 
I liked him. I liked, there's been a modification of Clea's outfit that's gone on in the past couple of issues, and I think it's a good one. Um, she's no longer wearing the big triangle around her neck that has stars all over it. That's kind of morphed into just like a big flying V that turns into her neckline and turns into like super pointy, almost shoulder pads, but more just like a big V that comes off of her neck. And I, I think that is a slightly less goofy version of her previous outfit. Yeah, I agree there. I especially like the, I don't know the fashion word for it, or even if there is one, but like the long, curly, magically animated pieces of fabric that are flying off of her shoulders next to the collar. Yeah, the twirly ribbons coming off of her, off of her collar, I think are a nice touch. Almost a Mr. Sinister streamer's cape, but not quite. Pretty cool. Yeah, so yeah, she's got that going, and she still does have... It's less the overlapping circles on her leggings now. It seems now just to be, like, random bandages around her. Kind of like uh, kind of like Eddie Van Halen's 80s guitar. You know what I mean? Yeah, in some instances, it sort of reminds me of the letting in the glass on that round window that's at the top of the Sanctum Sanctimonious. Oh, I can see that. Yeah, but uh, yeah, there's been kind of just like a mild modification to her outfit in a way that uh, I, I think really works for her. So I thought that was a nice touch. Dude, she could totally, like if you strapped Eddie Van Halen's guitar onto the way she's drawn, be fronting a, a serious... Uh, 80s metal band. Oh, man. honestly, it seems like her whole outfit is a deconstruction of Eddie Van Halen's guitar. It's got like <laughs> the flying V for like the decolletage, and then it's got like the lashings around the leggings. Yeah, nice work, Clea. Mm. Ooh, and given the creepy nature of her relationship with Steve, you could probably say that she's hot for teacher. Okay, Corey. Behold or be gone. In this scenario, you do have to major in drama at a major university. Given that, do you want to take a class from Professor Turk? Behold or be gone. Um, what, what, what's the, <laughs> what's the upside here? Usually there's a like, you get this cool thing if you make this otherwise awful decision to these <laughs> behold or be gone. <laughs> this one sounds like kind of a lose-lose for me. Well, okay, I'm saying you do have to, uh, the, the part that is non-negotiable is you are majoring in drama at a major university. So the upside, and there are a couple here, actually, he seems like he's a pretty good teacher. He at least knows a lot about drama, is an amazing actor. Seems like there's a lot you could probably pick up from him. Also, from a personal standpoint, there's a pretty good chance he's not going to attend a lot of the classes, which means that I don't have to go to them. Like, you know, 10-minute rule. And, you know, I hate learning, so that would be a plus for me. <laughs> um, I bet that if your professor gets put in international or interdimensional prison or dies, then you get an automatic A in the class. I don't know that that's the case, but that's my supposition about the way institutions of higher learning work. So I, I feel like the the potential upsides would be either you learn a lot about acting or you don't have to learn anything. So either one of those is kind of a benefit. The downside would be he's pretty evil 
and there's a decent chance that he'll hit you over the head with a big metal pole at some point. Yeah, I I think just uh, like, okay, in this hypothetical scenario, have I uh, bumped into the guy, ever spoken with him? Do I generally know who he is from seeing him around campus? Or is this just like I'm picking a class out of the catalog deal? Well, it's not random. You know... You you know a little bit about him. You may you you know everything that we know about him, basically. Oh, so you're signing up for this class, but you don't you haven't interacted with him. You're not no, friends a, or enemies with him personally. I I know enough. This is a solid be gone. That dude is r- roommates with Dollar Bill. <laughs> and yeah, I don't trust that guy. No, and that does imply that he's uh, up for inappropriate interactions with students. Yeah, I think his shitty goatee kind of implies that as well. And, uh, I don't know, I met him a couple times, I thought he was a real, uh, creep. Yeah. I don't want to learn from a creep if I don't have to. I think he's a creep. I don't know to what extent that is going to be an anomaly for drama professors. Um, Um, If you're a drama professor, please leave us a good review. Five stars. (laughs) Not a creep. I gotta say, I think I'm giving it a behold. What? Yeah. I mean, like I said, he is an amazing actor. He is maybe able to pass on some of the skills of persuasion that will allow him to land a job as a drama professor, despite having no history or references and the exact same name as a interstellar kidnapper. He clearly has the acting chops and persuasive speech that I think would be very useful if I do want to pursue a career as an actor. And conversely, like I said, there's a chance that he will go to interstellar jail or die. And, uh, you know, then I don't have to I I get I get to pass the class without doing any work, which, uh, you know, I hate learning. I know you don't like uh, being told what to do by a, a structure. Yeah, but. I don't know, man. I think that based on what we know about him, you are not going to do well in this situation because A, he's just going to spend the whole time telling you that you need initiative and B, you're just going to be looking at his goatee. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Uh, It is a tough choice, but I and I think you raised some good points, but I am still going to give it a behold. All right. One of each then. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? Mm, I think my favorite is a trio of sound effects of Hulk on page 27 leaping through the air and kind of pinball style smashing into three of those big joust birds. And it makes the sound uh, when he hits each one. Pow, smack, boff. Yep. uh, Specifically, my favorite was smack, which was, yeah, the Hulk straight up Randy Johnsoning that space bird. Mm hmm. He plows into the middle of the thing. There is an explosion, and then there is no more bird. And that, I guess, makes the noise smack. It makes me wonder if that is the noise that it made when Randy Johnson hit that bird. Uh, I bet smack is a pretty, yeah, pretty likely bird exploding noise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there were some other pretty good sound effects in this one. It was nice to see that again be a a component of the issue. And when Clea gets bopped on the noodle, it makes the noise Dak, uh, which I thought was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Hellcat gets beamed on the back of the head by Professor Turk, it makes the noise Swalk. 
which I thought was also pretty good. Yeah, good head bonking noises. Mm-hmm. But yeah, obviously the correct choice is smack. I do like it bookended by pow and boff, though. Agreed. What was your favorite panel? Yeah, as we talked about earlier, the art in this issue is not probably my favorite out of everything we've read, but there there was some pretty good parts to it. I had two choices. I, I think my backup is on page 15. I called it New Dimension. So on page 15, after Clea opens the, uh, the portal to the other dimension, it's um, drawn from a pretty interesting perspective. And uh, I, I thought that had kind of a cool, like, hints of psychedelia to it that were that were pleasing. It was. I, I had a similar one. I called that one Entering Pellucidar because uh, Pellucidar is the Edgar Rice Burroughs world that is in the middle of the hollow earth. And it looks like they are underground in some kind of a tunnel. It was confusing to me because that isn't what Turk's homeworld looks like in the Marvel premiere issues, like, at all. And also, it looks like they're going towards a portal rather than coming out of a portal, like they're in some kind of a weird tunnel. And maybe we'll see more of that in future issues. I also liked that panel a lot, but it confused me. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty trippy. Yeah, tunnel world, that's, I I think, what I was trying to think of, I believe, because Hulk refers to it by that name at some point. Oh, okay. Yeah, I liked that one a lot. I liked when the space birds first showed up on page 19. There were actually a few panels on page 19 that I liked a lot, but uh, yeah, the space birds first showing up, I felt like that was the first time in the issue that the art team was just like, oh yeah, let's have some fun with this and really poured a lot of work into it. Yeah, I just thought the space birds looked awesome. On that same page, we get the really nice close-up of Clea as she does her translation spell, and I just thought that was a really gorgeous close-up of Clea, and I really liked that one as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way that they portrayed the magic bubbles or circles coming off of her hands in that panel was pretty neat. Yeah, I liked the way that they chose different colors for those, too, instead of just having them be, like, concentric white circles. Mm-hmm. They look like space candy of some kind, and it's it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Space candy. Yeah, that's the best candy there is, probably. Actually, it probably isn't, because I've noticed that Astronaut's ice cream, regardless of how much I always wanted it and how much I liked the idea, was not very good. Yeah, same goes for that um, freeze-dried cheese. I think they sell it at Starbucks. Oh, I haven't tried that. Not good. I'm sorry. It's okay. Man, Astronaut seems like a pretty shit job. Your ice cream and your cheese suck, plus there's a pretty good chance you get turned into a space werewolf. Yeah. That said, I think my favorite panel is on page 26, and it's Hellcat tossing some of the lunatics with a K's, uh, judo style, I imagine. You just see her facing the viewer and uh, legs and boots flying willy-nilly towards you as the viewer. It's pretty great. And she calls them turkeys. That's pretty good. Do you think the gravity is different in this tunnel world, as the Hulk calls it? Because I noticed on page 22, there's a big fight scene panel, and one of the hobbits is is flying way up into the air for no particular reason. Do those space hobbits just have, like, super good hops? Like, are are they, like, slam dunking and shit? No, I imagined that um, one of the joust birds had picked him up and dropped him because his hat's fl- going flying off, too. Oh, yeah, I was trying to figure out what was going on, because it seems like maybe he's flying in the air due to an explosion of some type. But 
all of the bird jousters are armed with just like big lances and stuff that don't seem to be shooting energy weapons of any kind. So I was like, well, what's causing the explosion? I also, I mentioned it before, but I really like the panel that shows one of the uh, the space hobbits shooting a bow and arrow by bracing his feet against the bow and lying on his back and pulling on the bowstring with both hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was a really cool look. Although, makes you wonder a little bit about that guy because the guy next to him is just firing a bow and arrow regular style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe he's just got one good arm. Like one super developed like Popeye arm and the other one is just like weak and lying limp at his side like he's a pro arm wrestler. Yeah. Who specializes in righty. Yeah, just can't go over the top on the bow. Gotta use your feet. Makes sense. Now, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Yeah, normally I go a little outside of specifically what the Hulk says or does for these. But this is one of the rare instances where I'm just going to quote him directly and, and let his rule speak for itself. Plans are no good when friends are in trouble. There you go. Yeah. I think that's an excellent rule, and uh, it's one that the Hulk certainly did demonstrate in this issue. I had the Hulk learning from his friend's mistakes in this issue, and learning the rule, when people show you who they are, believe them. But more specifically, when people show you, and tell you, and deliver an 11-page lecture about who they are, believe them. (laughs) Because... Harrison Turk has clearly demonstrated over the issues in the course of this issue and during an 11-page lecture at the beginning of this issue that he is not to be trusted. And yet, they decide to trust him. And I think that if the Hulk had been with the team, he would not have made that mistake. He might have not been able to talk them out of it, but I don't think that he would have gone along with them. No, I, I think not. I think he would have seen right through that and called it as he saw it. And perhaps done some light smashing. Yep. Or just been like, you know, Hulk out how he does. Like, I'm out. (laughs) I love that, the Hulk. He's pretty good Hulk. Anyway, those are the Hulk's rules. Well, Corey, I think it's time for us to write some Wongs. So, in the year of our Lord, 1979, and the month of our Lord, May, what Wongs needed writing. We all know that uh, Wong has been an advocate for equal rights for everybody for pretty much his whole life, and it's no different in May of 1979. Wong is visiting some friends in the beautiful city of San Francisco and agrees to go with them on a march. And the march would later become known as the White Knight Riots, which was in protest to the lenient sentencing of Dan White for the assassination of the San Francisco mayor, George Muscone, and also of Harvey Milk, who was a member of the city's board of supervisors and one of the first openly gay elected officials in the U.S. And a few hours after the march, which had turned unexpectedly violent, uh, some of the people that were involved, including Wong, were hanging out, having a drink at a, a bar in the Castro district, and a bunch of police and riot gear showed up and basically beat up a bunch of the people that were there in retaliation for the protests that had taken place earlier that evening. Oh, geez. 
Yeah, it was bad, but several of the people ended up suing the uh, San Francisco Police Department. And in the news coverage and everything over the following days, various leaders in the gay rights community refused to apologize for the events that had led up to that. And many have argued that that's what culminated in later the election of uh, Dianne Feinstein for mayor of the city that following November. And in fulfilling one of her campaign promises, she appointed a a pro-gay chief of police who then increased the recruitment for, for gay folks on the police force in San Francisco, which went a long way towards easing the, the tensions between those two communities. And so that was one thing that Wong was involved with. It was um, stressful being part of that violence. So in order to lift his spirits a little bit once he was back home, he knew that Steve was really susceptible to um, jump scares in movies. Hmm. And... Um, said, hey, Steve, I got a surprise for you. We're going to go see a movie. And so on the 25th, he took him to see the premiere of Alien. Oh. And uh, Steve has never, never quite forgiven him for that. Very nice. Those are a couple of things that Wong was up to. Well, those were a couple of things that he was up to, but that was not all that he was up to. As you've mentioned many times in the past, Wong has a background in engineering and is interested in computers. And as such, one of the things that he was most excited about in March was on March 8th, going in out and getting the TRS-DOS 2.3 operating system for his TRS-80 computer. He just couldn't wait. But while he was out there, he saw a new album for sale. And he was a little bit concerned because all of his friends had just left for this other dimension to fight alongside Professor Turk, and he didn't really trust this Professor Turk guy. He, he, he saw him and he saw the clown makeup and was just like, I don't know about these guys. So when he sees that there's an album called Three Imaginary Boys that some of the promotional work featured a young man wearing white pancake makeup, he was like, oh, I wonder if there's a hidden message on this album. So he bought The Cure's debut album, Three Imaginary Boys, which came out on March 8th of 1979, and went home and listened to it looking for a secret message that might tell him what Professor Turk was up to. He didn't find that message, but he did enjoy the album and briefly convinced himself that he might have found the message. There's a song on the album called 1015 on Saturday Night, and Wong was like, well, It's Saturday night right now. I know that Lunatic with a K is always spouting off pop culture references. Maybe there's something on TV that'll give me a clue to his whereabouts. So, at 10.15 on Saturday night, March 8th, Wong turned on his television set and watched Starsky and Hutch. It was the episode where both Starsky and Hutch dated the same undercover policewoman and all three of them tried to catch a dance hall killer. And Wong didn't find any secret messages about Lunatic in there, but he was like, yeah, that's a pretty good show. (laughs) And that is what Wong was probably up to in May (laughs) of 1979. Listening to The Cure, programming his computer, and watching Starsky and Hutch. Specifically, the episode where both Starsky and Hutch date the same undercover policewoman. Wow. Busy month. Yep. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Corey. You're welcome. And thank you for joining us, listeners. It's been fun to talk to you 
about a comic book that I didn't particularly enjoy that much, but have high hopes for the improvement of. And yeah, I had a fun time talking about it. Hope you had a fun time listening to it. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so either electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com or via our post office box at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. We're also up in other facets of the uh, infotainment superhighway. We're up on the Tweetor, the Tumblr, the uh, Facebook, Link'em Up, you know, all the places you might expect to find us. So, you know, you can you can find us there. Now, that might be fun. You can can interact with us. I've been very much enjoying the interactions I have been having with you listeners. So uh, thanks. Thanks for uh, for reaching out. I really appreciate that. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, uh, you can do so at patreon.com slash TT Wasteland. I've been trying to do a lot more of the little video reviews, so you can see those on there. I've been trying to do at least one a day lately. And so, you know, if you're looking for something to fill some time, that would be one way. There is also the monthly podcast called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. You can listen to all of those. And there's a bunch of other bonus material that is available to all of our donors. Uh, So you can check all of that out there. Uh, Mostly, it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate what we're doing and would like us to keep doing it. Um, Speaking personally, having the income from the Patreon right now is super useful for me and is definitely a lifeline. I totally understand not everybody is in a position where they can afford to donate right now. And if you need to alter your donation in any way to reflect what's going on right now, please feel free to to do so. Um, but it, it means the world to me that so many of you have been uh, continuing your donations. So thank you. A way that you can uh, aid the show that is totally free if you would like to, is to leave us a review in a place that things can be reviewed. Uh, We've gotten a couple of new ones recently, which I really appreciate. And uh, yeah, it's always nice to uh, read nice things about myself, but more importantly, it helps other people find the show and uh, convinces them, whether it's true or not, that it is a worthwhile thing to listen to. So thanks for doing that. You guys are fucking rad. And, uh, yeah, your, your continued support in whatever way you're, you're expressing it, even if it's just by, uh, keeping listening really means a heck of a lot to me. So thank you. And with that smack, oh God, no, what just happened to that giant space bird? Oh, Randy Johnson, what are you doing in space? Oh no. Uh, thanks everybody. (laughs) Yep. Okay. Bye. Bye. Clea. Swing your arms from side to side. Come on, it's time to go. Do the Clea. Take one step and then again. Let's do the Clea. All together now. You got it. It's the Clea. Do the Clea. Swing your
your arms from side to side. Come on, it's time to go. Do the clear. Take one step and then again, let's do the clear. All together now. Come on now, just like that. 